Hi, I'm Johanna Ferreira, content director of Pop Sugar Juntos. Juntos is all about celebrating Latin A culture, pride, our many intersectional identities, and joy. Thanks to support from Prime, there's so much to get into over at Juntos this month. From conversations with the Latin A minds behind our favorite new movies and resurrected TV shows, to thoughtful celebrity commentary and exclusive interviews with some of the biggest Latin music artists today. And it doesn't stop there. Get more of the music, movies, and shopping you love on Prime. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more of whatever you're into from streaming to shopping. And get all of our latest coverage at PopSugar.com slash Juntos. Con amor, Johanna. Chapter 8. One Step Further on the Right Track. It is not a very romantic locality to which we must now conduct the reader, being neither more nor less than the shop and surgery of Mr. Augustus Darley, which, Temple of the Healing God, is scented this autumn afternoon with the mingled perfumes of Cavendish and bird's-eye tobacco, turkey rhubarb, whiskey punch, otto of roses and muffins, Conflicting odors, which form, or rather object to form, an amalgamation, each particular effluvium, asserting its individuality. In the surgery, Gus is seated, playing the intellectual and intensely exciting game of dominoes, with our acquaintance of the cheerful Cherokee Society, Mr. Percy Cordoner. A small jug, with Mr. Cordoner's bandana, stuffed into the top to imprison the subtle essences of the mixture within, "'stands between the two gentlemen. "'While Percy, as a guest, "'is accommodated with a real tumbler, "'having only three triangular bits "'chipped out of the edge. "'Gus imbibes the exciting fluid "'from a cracked custard cup "'with paper round it "'to keep the parts from separating, Two of which cups are supposed to be equal "'by just measurement to Mr. P.C.'s tumbler.' Before the small fire nears the juvenile domestic of the young surgeon, toasting muffins and presenting to the two gentlemen a pleasing study in anatomical perspective and the mysteries of foreshortening, to which, however, they are singularly inattentive, devoting their entire energies to the pieces of spotted ivory in their hands and the consumption, by equitable division, of the whiskey punch. "'I say, Gus,' said Mr. Cordoner, stopping in the middle of a gulp of his favorite liquid, at the risk of strangulation, with as much alarm in his face as his placid features were capable of exhibiting. I say, this isn't the professional tumbler, is it? Why, of course it is, said his friend. We have only had that one since midsummer. The patients don't like it because it's chipped. But I always tell them that after having gone through having a tooth out, particularly, he added parenthetically, as I take him out plenty of lancet, forceps, and key for their eighteen pence. They needn't grumble about having to rinse their mouths out of a cracked tumbler. Mr. Cordoner turned pale. Do they do that, he said, and deliberately shot his last sip of the delicious beverage over the head of the kneeling damsel, with so good an aim that it in a manner grazed her curl papers. "'It isn't friendly of you, Gus,' he said, with mild reproachfulness, "'to treat a fellow like this.' "'It's all right, old boy,' said Gus, laughing. "'Sarah Jane washes it, you know. "'You wash the tumbler and things, don't you, Sarah Jane?' "'Wash em, answered the youthful domestic. "'I should think so, sir, indeed. "'Why, I wipes em round regular with my apron "'and breathes on em to make em bright. 
"'Oh, that'll do,' said Mr. Cordoner piteously. "'Don't investigate, Gus. "'You'll only make matters worse. "'Oh, why, why did I ask that question? "'Why didn't I remember it's folly to be otherwise? "'That punch was delicious, and now—' "'He leant his head upon his hand, "'buried his face in his pocket-handkerchief, "'pondered in his heart, and was still. "'In the meantime, the shop is not empty.' "'Isabella is standing behind the counter, "'very busy with several bottles, "'a glass measure, and a pestle and mortar "'making up a prescription, "'a cough mixture from her brother's Latin. "'Rather a puzzling document, this prescription, "'to anyone but Bell, "'for there are calculations about next year's derby, "'scribbled on the margin, "'and rough sketches of the smasher, "'and a more youthful votary of the smasher's art, "'surnamed Whooping William.' "'penciled on the back thereof. "'But to Belle it seems straightforward enough. "'At any rate, she dashes away with the bottles, "'the measure, and the pestle and mortar, "'as if she knew perfectly well what she was about. "'She is not alone in the shop. "'A gentleman is leaning on the counter, "'watching the busy white hands very intently, "'and apparently deeply interested in the progress of the cough mixture.' This gentleman is her brother's old friend, Daredevil Dick. Richard Marwood has been a great deal at the surgery since the night on which he first set foot in his old haunts. He has brought his mother over and introduced that lady to Miss Darley. Mrs. Marwood was delighted with Isabella's frank manners and handsome face and insisted on carrying her back to dine in Spring Gardens. Quite a sociable little dinner they had, too, Richard being for a man who had been condemned for a murder and had escaped from a lunatic asylum, very cheerful indeed. The young man told Isabella all his adventures till that young lady alternately laughed and cried, thereby affording Richard's fond mother most convincing proof of the goodness of her heart and was altogether so very brilliant and amusing that when at eleven o'clock Gus came round from a critical case a quarrel of the cheerfuls as to whether Gustavus Ponzabai, novelist and satirist, magazine writer and poet, deserved the trouncing he had received in the Friday pillory. To take Bell home in a cab, the little trio simultaneously declared that the evening had gone as if by magic. As if by magic. What if to two out of those three the evening did really go by magic? There is a certain pink-legged little gentleman with wings and a bandage round his eyes who some people say is as great a magician in his way as Albertus Magnus or Dr. D. That gentleman, I have no doubt, presided on the occasion. Thus, the acquaintance of Richard and Isabella had ripened into something very much like friendship, and here he is, watching her employed in the rather unromantic business of making up a cough mixture for an elderly washerwoman of methodistical persuasions. But it is one of the fancies of the pink-legged gentleman, aforesaid, to lend his bandage to his victims. And there is nothing that John, William, George, Henry, James, or Alfred can do, in which Jane, Eliza, Susan, or Sarah will not see a dignity in a charm, or vice versa. Pshaw! It is not Mokona who wears the silver veil— It is we who are in love with Makona, who put on the glittering, blinding medium, and looking at that gentleman through the dazzle and the glitter, 
insist on thinking him a very handsome man, till someone takes the veil off our eyes, and we straightway fall to and abuse poor Makona, because he is not what we choose to fancy him. It is very hard upon poor tobacco-smoking, beer-imbibing, card-playing, latchkey-loving Tom Jones that Sophia will insist on elevating him into a god and then being angry with him because he is Tom Jones and fond of bitter ale and bird's-eye. But come what may, the pink-legged gentleman must have his diversion, and no doubt his eyes twinkle merrily behind that bandage of his, to see the fools this wise world of ours is made up of. "'You could trust me, Isabella, then,' said Richard. "'You could trust me, in spite of all, "'in spite of my wasted youth and the blight upon my name. "'Do we not all trust you, Mr. Marwood, with our entire hearts?' "'answered the young lady, taking shelter under cover of a very wide generality. "'Not Mr. Marwood, Belle. "'It sounds very cold from the lips of my old friend's sister.' "'Everyone calls me Richard, and I, without once asking permission, have called you Bell. "'Call me Richard, Bell, if you trust me.' "'She looks him in the face, and is silent for a moment. "'Her heart beats a great deal faster, so fast that her lips can scarcely shape the words she speaks. "'I do trust you, Richard. I believe your heart to be goodness and truth itself.' "'Is it worth having, then, Bell?' I wouldn't ask on that question if I had not a hope now, I, and not such a feeble one, either, to see my name cleared from the stain that rests upon it. If there is any truth in my heart, Isabella, that truth is yours alone. Can you trust me, as the woman who loves trusts through life until death, under every shadow and through every cloud? I don't know whether essence of peppermint, tincture of myrrh, and hair oil are the proper ingredients in a cough mixture, but I know that Isabella poured them into the glass measure very liberally. You do not answer me, Isabella. Ah, you cannot trust the branded criminal, the escaped lunatic, the man the world calls a murderer. Not trust you, Richard. Only four words, and only one glance from the gray eyes into the brown, and so much told so much more than I could tell you in a dozen chapters told in those four words and that one look. Gus opens the half-glass door at this very moment. "'Are you coming to tea?' he asks. "'Here's Sarah Jane, up to her eyes in grease and muffins.' "'Yes, Gus, dear old friend,' said Richard, laying his hand on Darley's shoulder. "'We're coming in to tea immediately, brother.' Gus looked at him with a glance of considerable astonishment, shook him heartily by the hand, and gave a long whistle, after which he walked up to the counter and examined the cough mixture. "'Oh,' he said, "'I suppose that's why you've put enough laudanum into this to poison a small regiment, eh, Belle? Perhaps we may as well throw it out of the window, for if it goes out the door, I shall be hung for wholesale murder.' They were a very merry party over the little tea-table, and if nobody ate any of the muffins, which Mr. Cordoner called embodied indigestions, they laughed a great deal and talked still more, so much so, that Percy declared his reasoning faculties to be quite overpowered and wanted to be distinctly informed whether it was Richard who was going to marry Gus or Gus about to unite himself to the juvenile domestic 
or he himself, who was to be married against his inclination, which, seeing he was of a yielding and peace-loving disposition, was not so unlikely, or, in short, to use his own expressive language, what the row was all about. Nobody, however, took the trouble to set Mr. P.C.'s doubts at rest, and he drank his tea with perfect contentment, but without sugar, and in a dense intellectual fog. "'It doesn't matter,' he murmured. "'Perhaps Richard will turn again and be Lord Mayor of London Town, "'and then my children will read his adventures in a future Pinnock, "'and they may understand it. "'It's a great thing to be a child and to understand those sorts of things. "'When I was six years old, I knew who William Rufus married "'and how many people died in the Plague of London. "'I can't say it made me any happier or better, "'but I dare say it was a great advantage.' At this moment the bell hung at the shop door, a noisy preventative of petty larceny, giving the alarm if any juvenile delinquent had a desire to abstract a bottle of castor oil or a chamomile pill or so for his peculiar benefit, rang violently, and our old friend Mr. Peters burst into the shop, and through the shop into the parlor, in a state of such excitement that his very fingers seemed out of breath. "'Back again!' cried Richard, starting up with surprise. "'For be it known to the reader "'that Mr. Peters had only the day before "'started for Slopperton on the slosh "'to hunt up evidence about this man "'whose very image lay buried outside that town. "'Before the fingers of Mr. Peters, "'which quite shook with excitement, "'could shape an answer to Richard's exclamation of surprise, "'a very dignified elderly gentleman, "'whose appearance was almost clerical,' "'followed the detective into the room "'and bowed politely to the assembled party. "'I will take upon myself to be my own sponsor,' "'said that gentleman. "'If, as I believe, I am speaking to Mr. Marwood,' "'he added, looking at Richard, who bowed affirmatively. "'It is to the interest of both of us, "'of you, sir, more especially, "'that we should become acquainted. "'I am Dr. Tappenden of Slopperton.' Mr. Cordoner, having politely withdrawn himself from the group so as not to interfere with any confidential communication, was here imprudent enough to attempt to select a book from the young surgeon's hanging library, and, in endeavouring to take down the third volume, brought down, as usual, the entire library shower-bath on his devoted head, and sat quietly snowed up, as it were, in loose leaves of Michael Levy's shilling edition, "'and fragments of illustrations by Tony Jehanot. "'Richard looked a little puzzled at Dr. Tappenden's introduction, "'but Mr. Peters threw in this piece of information. "'He knows him,' and Richard was immediately interested. "'We are all friends here, I believe,' said the schoolmaster, "'glancing around interrogatively. "'Oh, decidedly, monsieur,' replied Percy, "'absently looking up from one of the loose leaves "'he had selected for perusal from those scattered round him. "'Your friend is pleased to be facetious,' said the doctor, "'with some indignation. "'Oh, praise excuse him, sir. "'He is only absent-minded,' replied Richard. "'My friend Peters informs me that you know this man, "'the singular, this incomprehensible villain, "'whose supposed death is so extraordinary. "'He... Either the man who died, or this man who is now occupying a high position in London, was for some years in my employ. 
but in spite of what our worthy friend the detective says, I am inclined to think that Jabez North, my tutor, did actually die, and that it was his body which I saw at the police station. Not a bit of it, sir, said the detective on his rapid fingers. Not a bit of it. That death was a due, a due out and out. It was too systematic to be anything else. And I was a fool not to see there was something black at the bottom of it at the time. People don't go and lay themselves out high and dry upon a heath with clean soles to their shoes on a stormy night and the bottle in their hand, not took hold of neither, but lying loose, you understand, put there, not clutched as a dying man clutches what his hand closes upon. I say, this ain't how people make away with themselves when they can't stand life any longer. It was a dew, a plant, such as very few but that man could be capable of. And that man's your tutor, and the death was meant to put a stop to all suspicion. And while you was a-sighing and a-groaning over that poor young innocent, Mr. Jabez North was a-cutting a fine figure and captivating a foreign heiress with your money or your banker's money, as he had to bear the loss of them forged checks. "'But the likeness,' said Dr. Tappenden, "'that dead man was the very image of Jabez North.' "'Very likely, sir. "'There's mysterious goings-on, "'and some coincidences in this life, "'as well as in your story-books "'that's lent out at three half-pence a volume. "'Keep them three days and return them clean.' "'Well,' continued the schoolmaster, "'the moment I see this man... "'I shall know whether he is indeed the person we want to find. "'If he should be the man who was my usher, "'I can prove a circumstance which will go a great way, Mr. Marwood, "'towards fixing your uncle's murder upon him.' "'And that is?' asked Richard eagerly. "'But there is no occasion for the reader to know what it is just yet, "'so we will leave the little party in the Friar Street surgery "'to talk this business over, "'which they do with such intense interest.' "'that the small hours catch them still talking of the same subject, "'and Mr. Percy Cordoner still snowed up in his corner, "'reading from the loose leaves the most fascinating of literature, "'wherein the writings of Charles Dickens, George Sand, "'Harrison Ainsworth, and Alexander Dumas "'are blended together in the most delicious and exciting confusion. "'Chapter Nine. Captain Lansdowne overhears a conversation which appears to interest him. Laurent Blue-Rosset was a sort of rage at the West End of London. What did they seek, these weary denizens of the West End, but excitement? Excitement, no matter how obtained. If Laurent Blue-Rosset were a magician, so much the better. If he had sold himself to the devil, so much the better again, and so much the more exciting. There was something almost approaching to a sensation in making a morning call upon a gentleman who had possibly entered into a contract with Satanas, or put his name on the bit of stamped paper payable at sight to Lucifer himself. And then there was the slightest chance, the faintest shadow of a probability, of meeting the proprietor of the gentleman they called upon. And what could be more delightful than that? How did he visit Marlborough Street, the proprietor, had he a pass-key to the hall door? Or did he leave his card with the servant, like any other of the gentlemen his pupils and allies? Or did he rise through a trap in the Brussels carpet in the drawing-room? Or slide through one of the sham woovermans that adorn the walls? 
at any rate, a visit to the mysterious chemist of Marlborough Street was about the best thing to do at this fag end of the worn-out London season, and Monsieur Laurent Blue-Rosset was considered a great deal better than the opera. It was growing dusk on the evening of which there was so much excitement in the little surgery in Friar Street, when a plain-clothes carriage stopped at Monsieur Blue-Rosset's door, and a lady alighted, thickly veiled. The graceful but haughty head is one we know. It is Valerie, who, in the depth of her misery, comes to this man, who is in part the author of that misery. She is ushered into a small apartment at the back of the house, half-study, half-laboratory, littered with books, manuscripts, crucibles, and mathematical instruments. On a little table near a fire that burns low in the grate, are thrown in a careless heap the well-remembered cards, the cards which eight years ago foretold the death of the king of spades. The room is empty when she enters it, and she seats herself in the depth of the shadow, for there is no light but the flickering flame of the low fire. What does she think of as she sits in the gloom of that silent apartment? Who shall say? What forest deep, what lonely ocean strand, what desert island is more dismal than the back room of a London house at the window of which looks in a high black wall or a dreary, smoke-dried, weird, vegetable phenomenon which nobody on earth but the landlord ever called a tree? What does she think of in this dreary room? What can she think of? What has she ever thought, for eight years past, but of the man she loved and murdered? And he was innocent. As long as she had been convinced of his guilt, of his cruel and bitter treachery, it had been a sacrifice, that ordeal of the November night. Now it took another color. It was a murder, and she a pitiful puppet in the hands of a master fiend. Monsieur Blue-Rosset enters the room and finds her alone with these thoughts. Madame, he says, I have perhaps the honor of knowing you. He has so many fair visitors that he thinks this one, whose face he cannot see, may be one of his old clients. It is eight years since you have seen me, Monsieur, she replies. You have most likely forgotten me. Forgotten you, Madame, perhaps, but not your voice. That is not to be forgotten. "'Indeed, monsieur, and why not?' "'Because, madame, it has a peculiarity of its own, "'which as a physiologist I cannot mistake. "'It is the voice of one who has suffered.' "'It is, it is. "'Of one who has suffered more than it is a common lot of women to suffer. "'You are right, monsieur. "'And now, madame, what can I do for you?' "'Nothing, monsieur.' You can do nothing for me but that which the commonest apothecary in this city who will sell me an ounce of laudanum can do as well as you. Oh, has it come to that again, he says, with a shade of sarcasm in his tone. I remember eight years ago. I asked you for the means of death. I did not say I wished to die then. At that moment, I did not. I had a purpose in life. I have still. As she said these words, the fellow lodger of Blue Rosset, the Indian soldier, Captain Lansdowne, who had let himself in with his latchkey, crossed the hall, and was arrested at the half-open door of the study by the sound of voices within. I don't know how to account for conduct so unworthy of an officer and a gentleman, 
but the captain stopped in the shadow of the dark hall and listened, as if life and death were on the words, to the voice of the speaker. I have, I say, still a purpose in life, a solemn and a sacred one, to protect the innocent, however guilty I may be. Thank heaven I have still the power to protect my son. You are married, madame. I am married. You know it as well as I, Monsieur Laurent Blueroset. The man who first brought me to your apartment must have been, if not your accomplice, at least your colleague. He revealed to you his scheme, no doubt, in order to secure your assistance in that scheme. I am married to a villain, such a villain as I think heaven never before looked down upon. And you would protect your son, madame, from his father. Captain Lansdowne face gleams through the shadow as white as the face of Valerie herself, as she stands looking full at Monsieur Blue Rosset in the flickering firelight. "'And you would protect your son from his father, madame,' repeats the chemist. "'The man to whom I am at present married is not the father of my son,' says Valerie, in a cold, calm voice. "'How, madame?' "'I was married before,' she continued. "'The son I so dearly love is the son of my first husband. "'My second marriage has been a marriage only in name. "'Your worthy colleague, Monsieur Raymond Marol, "'stained his hands in innocent blood to obtain a large fortune. "'He has that, and is content, but he shall not hold it long. "'And your purpose in coming to me, madame, "'is to accuse you, yes, Monsieur Laurent Blueroset, to accuse you as an accomplice in the murder of Gaston de Lancy. An accomplice in a murder? Yes, you sold me a poison. You knew for what that poison was to be used. You were in the plot, the vile and demonic plot, that was to steep my soul in guilt. You prophesied the death of the man I was intended to murder. You put the thought into my distracted brain, the weapon into my guilty hand, and while I suffer all the tortures which heaven inflicts on those who break its laws, are you to go free? No, monsieur, you shall not go free. Either join with me in accusing this man and help me to drag him to justice, or by the light in the sky, by the lifeblood of my broken heart, by the life of my only child, I swear to denounce you. Gaston de Lancy shall not go unavenged by the woman who loved and murdered him. The mention of the name of Gaston de Lancy, the man she so dearly and devotedly loved, has a power that nothing else on earth has over Valerie, and she breaks into a passionate torrent of tears. Laurent Blueroset looks on silently at this burst of anguish. Perhaps he regards it as a man of science, and can calculate to a moment how long it will last. The Indian officer, in the shadow of the doorway, is more affected than the chemist and philosopher, for he falls on his knees by the threshold and hides his pale face in his hands. There, in a silence of perhaps five minutes, a terrible silence, it seems only broken by the heart-rending sobs of this despairing woman. At last, Laurent Blueroset speaks, speaks in a tone in which she has never heard him speak before, in a tone in which, probably, very few have heard him speak, in a tone so strange to him and his ordinary habits that it, in a manner, transforms him into a new man. You say, madame, 
I was an accomplice of this man's. How if he did not condescend to make me an accomplice? How if this gentleman, who, owing all his success in life to his unassisted villainy, has considerable confidence in his own talents, did not think me worthy of the honor of being his accomplice? How, monsieur? No, madame, Laurent Bleu-Rosset was not a man for the brilliant Parisian adventurer Raymond Marol to enlist as a colleague. No, Laurent Bleu-Rosset was merely a philosopher, a physiologist, a dreamer, a little bit of a madman, and but a poor puppet in the hands of the man of the world, the chevalier of fortune, the unscrupulous and designing Englishman. An Englishman? Yes, madame, that is one of your husband's secrets. He is an Englishman. I was not clever enough to be the accomplice of Monsieur Marol. In his opinion, I was not too clever to become his dupe. His dupe? Yes, madame, his dupe, his contempt, for the man of science was most supreme. I was a useful automaton, nothing more. The chemist, the physiologist, the man whose head had grown gray in the pursuit of an inductive science, whose nights and days had been given to the study of the great laws of cause and effect, was a puppet in the hands of the chevalier of fortune, and as little likely to fathom his motives as the wooden doll is likely to guess those things of the showman who pulls the strings that make it dance. So thought Raymond Marol, the adventurer, the fortune hunter, the thief, the murderer. What, monsieur? You knew him, then? To the very bottom of his black heart, madame. Science would indeed have been a lie. Wisdom would indeed have been a chimera. If I could not have read through the low cunning of the superficial showy adventurer, as well as I can read the words written in yonder book through the thin veil of a foreign character. I, his dupe, as he thought, the learned fool at whose labors he laughed, even while he sought to avail himself of their help. I laughed at him in turn, read every motive. But let him laugh on, lie on, till the time at which it should be my pleasure to lift the mask and say to him, Raymond Marol, charlatan, liar, fool, dupe, in the battle between wisdom and cunning, the gray-eyed goddess is the conqueror. What, monsieur? Then you are doubly a murderer. You knew this man, and yet abetted him in the vilest plot by which a wretched woman was ever made to destroy the man she loved a thousand times better than her worthless self. Laurent Bleu-Rosset smiled a most impenetrable smile. I acted for a purpose, madame, I wish to test the effects of a new poison. Yours, the murder, if there was a murder, not mine. You asked me for a weapon. I put it into your hands. I did not compel you to use it. No, monsieur, but you prompted me. If there is justice on earth, you shall suffer for that act as well as Monsieur Marol. If not, there is justice in heaven. God's punishments are more terrible than those of men, and you have all the more cause to tremble, you and the wretch whose accomplice you were, whose willing accomplice by your own admission you were. And yourself, madame, in dragging us to justice, may you not yourself suffer? Suffer? She laughs a hollow, bitter peal of mocking laughter, painful to hear, very painful to the ears of the listener in the shadow, whose face is still buried in his hands. Suffer? 
No, Monsieur Blue-Rosset, for me on earth there is no more suffering. If in hell the wretches doomed to eternal punishment suffer as I have suffered for the last eight years, as punishment on that winter's night when the man I love died, then indeed God is an avenging deity. Do you think the worst the law can inflict upon me for that guilty deed is by one thousandth degree equal to the anguish of my own mind every day? and every hour. Do you think I fear disgrace? Disgrace? Bah! What is it? There never was but one being on earth whose good opinion I valued, or whose bad opinion I feared. That man I murdered? You think I fear the world? The world to me was him, and he is dead. If you do not wish to be denounced as the accomplice of a murderess and her accomplice, do not let me quit this room, for by the heaven above me, so surely as I quit this room, alive I go to deliver you, Raymond Morol, and myself, into the hands of justice. And your son, madame, what of him? I have made arrangements for his future happiness, monsieur. He will return to France, and be placed under the care of my uncle. For a few moments there is silence. Laurent Blue-Rosset seems lost in thought. "'Valerie sits with her bright hollow eyes "'fixed on the flickering flame of the low fire. "'Billy Rosset is the first to speak. "'You say, madame, "'that if I do not wish to be given up to justice "'as the accomplice of a murderer, "'I shall not suffer you to leave this room, "'but sacrifice you to the preservation of my own safety. "'Nothing more easy, madame. "'I have only to raise my hand, to wave a handkerchief, "'medicated in the manner of those the Borgias and Medicis used of old before your face, "'to scatter a few grains of powder into that fire at your feet, "'to give you a book to read, a flower to smell, "'and you do not leave this room alive. "'And this is how I should act, if I were, what you say I am, "'the accomplice of a murderer. "'How, monsieur? "'You had no part in the murder of my husband, "'you who gave me the drug which killed him.' "'You jump at conclusions, madame. "'How do you know that the drug which I gave you killed Gaston de Lancy? "'Oh, for pity's sake, do not juggle with me, monsieur. "'Speak. What do you mean?' "'Simply this, madame, "'that the death of your husband on the evening of the day "'on which you gave him the drugged wine "'may have been a coincidence. "'Oh, monsieur, in mercy. "'Nay, madame, it was a coincidence.' "'The drug I gave you was not a poison. "'You were guiltless of your husband's death. "'Oh, heaven be praised! "'Merciful heaven be praised!' "'She falls on her knees "'and buries her head in her hands "'in a wild burst of tearful thanksgiving. "'While her face is thus hidden, "'Blue Rosset takes from a little cabinet "'on one side of the fireplace "'a handful of a light-colored powder, "'which he throws upon the expiring cinders in the grate.' A lurid flame blazes up, illuminating the room with a strange, unnatural glare. Valerie, Countess de Marol, he says, in a tone of solemn earnestness. Men say I am a magician, a sorcerer, a disciple of the Angel of Darkness. Nay, some more foolish than the rest have been so blasphemous as to declare that I have power to raise the dead. "'Yours is no mind to be fooled by such shallow lies as these. "'The dead 
never rise again in answer to the will of mortal man. Lift your head, Valerie, not Countess de Marol. I no longer call you by that name, which is in itself a falsehood. Valerie de Lancy, look yonder. He points in the direction of the open door. She rises, looks towards the threshold, staggers a step forward, utters one long wild shriek, and falls senseless to the floor. In all the agonies she has endured, in all the horrors through which she has passed, she has never before lost her senses. The cause must indeed be a powerful one. Phoebe Reads a Mystery is recorded in the studios of North Carolina Public Radio, WUNC.